Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of The Carbon Curve. I'm your host, Naeem Merchant, and this is a podcast about the collective action approach needed to remove billions of tons of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and fend off the worst effects of climate change. Today's episode is sponsored by Carbon Future. Carbon Future is an end-to-end platform for companies who want to participate in removing carbon from the atmosphere. Unlike conventional marketplaces, Carbon Future's monitoring, reporting, and verification platform solves carbon credit uncertainty for buyers like Microsoft and Swiss Re, while Carbon Future support helps scale the world's most promising carbon removal ventures for real climate impact. You can learn more at carbonfuture.org. After taking a short pause on releasing new episodes, I'm really excited about the interviews I've lined up for the rest of the year. And today, we're covering something I've been dying to talk about. Insurance. Just hear me out. According to Carbon Removal Purchase Tracker, CDR.FYI, around 640,000 tons of CO2 removal have been purchased globally, and only 7% of those tons have actually been delivered. Carbon Removal, or CDR, is still very much in its infancy. But as CDR solutions move from pilot to commercial scale, and purchases and deliveries really start to pick up, the market is going to become increasingly complex. We'll see more public sector involvement, more private sector buyers, more projects being deployed, more communities being impacted, more successes, but also more failures. And as a result, more risk overall. My guest today thinks that insurance is critical to unlocking the scale potential of CDR. We talk about what problems innovative new insurance products can solve for buyers and sellers in the CDR market, and the limits of insurance in solving some of the more thorny risks associated with scaling up carbon removal. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe to this podcast at carboncurve.substack.com or through your favorite podcast app. And if you'd like to get in touch, shoot me an email at naeem at carboncurve.co. I hope you enjoy the show. Today's guest is Natalia Dorfman, CEO of Kita. And Kita is the carbon insurer for the climate crisis. Kita's purpose is enabling more financing for high-quality carbon removal projects to scale via specialized insurance products that reduce risk in carbon transactions. Kita's first product coming to market early next year is Carbon Purchase Protection Cover, protecting buyers of forward-purchased carbon removal credits against under-delivery. Natalia Dorfman is CEO and co-founder of Kita. Prior to founding Kita, Natalia spent 15 years doing business development and strategy for international law firms, including eight and a half years at Clyde & Co., the world's largest insurance-focused law firm. At Clyde & Co., Natalia was global head of new business and led business development strategy for the firm's climate risk practice. Natalia, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I'm really excited to be here. So we were introduced via Ben Rubin at the Carbon Business Council. Uh, you know, How did you come to be part of the Carbon Business Council, and, and what did you see as a value of, of joining that group? Well, we met Ben as part of Carbon 13. So Kita was founded as part of Carbon 13, which is a venture builder for climate tech companies. And at some point throughout that network, I met Ben, and we were very fortunate to be one of the founding members of the Carbon Business Council. And I think from our side, I guess there's two things within that organization. I mean, one, it's been amazing to have the opportunity to work with so many innovative new carbon removal companies. And one of the things I really love about this this new area, this new industry, is how even when there's competition, there's still so much collaboration because we're all really trying to do the same thing. Yeah, that's right. And I, I think that's, you know, I reached out to Ben, you know, as I learned about 
about Kita initially and thought, how can I get in touch with the folks running this company? Uh, and <laughs> the first name came to mind was Ben. And so it is a really great resource to be able to have uh, folks from across the industry be able to come together in a coalition. Yeah, like definitely. That. Just to kind of, uh, you know, get to know you a little bit better. How did you make the shift from the legal industry to working on climate and, and what motivated you to make that shift? So I always had, I guess, an interest in in the environment. I was that kid who majored in environmental science at university because I thought it would let me go hiking more, which is obviously what every parent wants their child to spend their university degree doing. Um, but I quite quickly realized that doing environmental science meant I spent a lot of time in the lab, which I didn't particularly like. And so after university, I did the kind of classic falling into an industry and I did business development and strategy, like you said, for 15 years at large global law firms, which is an amazing job. And I did actually help lawyers, you know, win business across environmental law, as well as antitrust, corporate, et cetera, in New York, Brussels, and London. And in London is when I started working for Clyde & Co. And I guess that's where the early start of both insurance and me getting back into climate change came. So Clyde & Co. works with basically every large insurance company out there. And when I joined them, I was a business development manager for their insurance team in London. And it's really the first time that I learned about sophisticated insurance, not like your car insurance and your home insurance, which is sort of like a standard, but the insurance that really makes the economy function. Everything is insured. It's absolutely integral to how things function. And so I learned that. But then also, after my second maternity leave there is when I came back and I'd been promoted to Global Head of New Business. And they said to me, you know, this is a brand new job within the company. It's never existed. What do you want to do? Like, where is the new business? And this was 2000, I think, 18. And I said, climate change, right? Like, there has to be tons and tons and tons of legal work that we can go out and assist our clients with in the area of climate change. And so I started working with Clyde & Co's small team who was looking at climate risks. And Clyde & Co is a disputes-driven law firm. And so we worked with tons of clients, lots and lots of insurance companies, but lots of other companies across other sectors to look at the climate-related risks and liabilities, the strategic litigation coming out, as well, of course, the opportunities that they could capitalize on and their net zero strategies. And it was in this time that I suppose I just had that realization, right? We spoke with academics, with consultants, with government, with anyone. We, I learned so much about what was happening with climate change. And I had that moment of thinking, I can either sort of stick my head in the sand and ignore this and just go on with my life and my nice job, or I can try and do something about it. And I, I just thought I, I have to try and do something about it because it's too frustrating to not. And, and so I decided the rest of my career will be focused on climate change. Clyde & Co is amazing, but my job there was broader. And so I left Clyde & Co. And that's when, like I mentioned at the start, where I came to Carbon 13, which is this venture builder for climate tech companies. And I thought, I will start a climate tech startup. And so that's how the very, very early sort of, I guess, route away from law into climate came about. That's really great. And I love to highlight stories where people get into climate from an entirely different industry. That, that was yeah. definitely my story. It's many others, especially when you're talking about something like carbon removal, which is just such a new industry that everyone has come from somewhere else. 
And hearing about how other folks have been able to do it is super inspiring. And I also think it just helps other people think about like, not even if they stay in their current job, how, how, is, how can my job be a climate job? I think that's a, yes. like a useful thing for people to think about. And then, and then, you know, you can take that extra step and do what you did and started your own company. So, so tell, tell us about how you started Kita and what Kita is really trying to do and who your customers are. And then when you get a second as well, you know, what is Kita not trying to do? Yeah, of course. But actually, before I say that, just something you said there made me really think, um, because in terms of two things, both the kind of going from another industry into climate and doing that via startup. Because actually, I didn't necessarily want to do a startup. I just wanted to do climate. But it's very hard to get hired in a climate role at a large company when you don't come from climate. So to some extent, it was actually easier to start my own company than it would have been to get hired at another company. Um, And so that is something I think people can think of. They have the skills. They have the knowledge. They might just not have the right actual experience for the CV that someone is looking for. So you can start your own company. There's just, you know, I'd say do it. I guess so I I came to Carbon 13 and like I said, I thought I would start a, a climate tech startup. I thought it would be a hard tech. I thought I would be the CEO to some, you know, genius who had this amazing technology but just couldn't sell it. But when I was there and there were 70 people there and the first six weeks were around finding a co-founder. And so I was very organized. I made sure I spoke to absolutely everybody. And when I was speaking to people and they were telling me what they wanted to do, all of these amazing ideas, everyone was going to, you know, remove gigatons of carbon from the air within 10 years. And I kept asking them the boring question of, you know, like amazing idea, but where are you going to get insurance for that? Because since I'd, sp- I'd worked at Clyde Co. For, for so long and I'd spoken to so many insurance companies, I knew that there weren't insurance products available for the specific types of technologies that these, these amazing people were trying to build. And if you can't get insurance, particularly if you're building some form of hard tech, at some point you re- reach a cap right? You, where venture financing just isn't enough. You're going to give away your business. You need project financing, like significant financing. And you don't get that kind of financing without insurance. And so in the very early days of this idea, I wasn't specific on carbon removal at all. I just saw the lack of insurance across sort of climate space as this ceiling to growth. And I thought, if we can't break that ceiling, we just do not get these new technologies to market in the time frame that we're talking about here. And I will say the amazing thing about the insurance industry, one of the amazing things, I'm a huge, obviously, proponent of insurance, is that you can insure anything. I think there's a rumor I heard once that um, someone within Lloyd's of London insured immaculate conception, right? Like you can literally insure anything if you can put your mind to it. And so A, I knew that there was no reason why I couldn't start a really specialized insurance company that just insured this one niche area and could get out a portfolio of products. But I also knew, and I suppose this is reinforcing why, why we decided to do an insurance company, larger insurance companies, because they have such a huge breadth of insurance that they provide tend to take time before moving into new industries. And they will eventually. We've seen that with cyber, you know, crypto, but it takes some time. And again, we don't have the time with climate. And so we thought, do a climate-focused insurer. Um, and then I met my co-founders, Paul and Tom, and they had come into Carbon 13 with an idea around the voluntary carbon markets. And they, of course, also have the skill sets to actually build insurance products, which I don't have that technical skill. 
And so over time, the combination of my kind of vague, you know, insurance for climate idea combined with their idea around increasing transparency in the voluntary carbon markets um, with a focus on carbon removal. And they came together. And, and so that is Kita, is that really niche focus on using insurance as a de-risker of carbon removal in order to enable more of that financing, taking the risk away from the, the people on the ground, you know, the project developer, the buyer, and transferring it to a company that specializes in risk. And I think if you can do that effectively, you really free up the flows of financing that is so very essential right now to scale it up. Yeah, I think I think that makes a lot of sense. And I'd love to get into that a bit later as well. It just seems like the insurance side of of the carbon removal industry is something that we don't really talk about, right? We talk about scale in this vacuum. And I think it's really interesting to speak to people who are like, well, these are, you know, of all of these other industries that scale, you know, these are the other components that needed to be in place in order to do that successfully. And that's why it's valuable to look at other industries that have grown rapidly and, and understand well, what was in place and how do we intentionally kind of shape this market so that it includes these key components quickly uh, so that we can move fast. So yeah, yeah. how did you ultimately decide on carbon removal and what methods within carbon removal made sense to cover? So the reason we ultimately decided on carbon removal at the outset was really based on conversations with lots and lots of people in the space. So what we set out to do was not do the classic, or at least the stereotypically classic startup move of creating a solution in search of a problem. We really wanted to understand what the problems were and then create a solution that fixed those problems. So we started speaking to tons and tons of people in the voluntary carbon space, broadly speaking, um, and asking them, you know, what is the, what's the problem? Like what's holding back the growth of this market? And over time, we, we got steered towards you know, carbon removal being the subset of the market that needed to scale up and the increasing rise of forward financing causing this delivery risk that was really causing problems. And so that was sort of steered us towards this first product of carbon removal and looking at delivery risk. And then in terms of what types of carbon removal we cover and how we decided on that, again, it was largely and still is largely dictated on what people want um, with some aspects of commerciality, of course. So from our side, I know people can disagree on this. When we say carbon removal, we're looking at nature-based as well as engineered solutions. And so there is an element of scale, of course, of where we look first. And, you know, afforestation, reforestation is, you know, the largest carbon removal out there. So that had to be an area of focus. But then when we speak to clients and potential clients, we always ask, you know, what forms of carbon removal are you buying today? Are you interested in buying is, is on your sort of to-do list? And, you know, mangroves, biochar, um, advanced weathering. And so we really try and take into account what people are buying or what they want to be buying to steer our product direction. And I think that is very important. And then I guess the third part there is we try and keep an eye on the new technologies developing 
you know, if a new technology is still really experimental, we can't insure it yet with this product. But we very much like to speak to people developing those technologies so we can start to understand them. And we would like to think that we will be the early mover to ensure the newest technologies once they get to a point where we can ensure them so that we can start driving that finance as soon as we can. And other than, you know, carbon removal technologies or methods that are very experimental, are there other areas within carbon removal that you're not trying to do that you're trying to stay away from? No, actually. Um, I would say no. Right now, no one has asked us to ensure direct air capture. Um, and I think that is possibly because a, it's still so small right, in terms of volume. And it's so expensive that people who buy it almost really do it as an impact investment almost rather than necessarily caring if they actually get the carbon credits in return to retire them. Um, so that's one that people haven't asked for, but we certainly would love to ensure it. So there's no existing carbon removal type right now that we would have a, a no towards. And I think actually I didn't answer one of your earlier questions in terms of what is key to not. Um, I sort of said what we're trying to do, but not what we don't do. And I suppose this question to some point sort of alludes to that. So we are not a carbon standard. You know, we are not a, a ratings agency. We are not a monitoring and verification company. And we are not the dictators of what is good and what is bad and how should carbon be used. We obviously have our own views on that, but I don't see insurance necessarily as being the deciders. I think we see our role as really being an enabler um, in support of that broader market and hoping, but also seeing, you know, new groups and, and people in that broader market really trying to push towards more integrity um, and trust and transparency, which then, of course, helps insurance to grow. Yeah, that's great. And what has been the response to your offering among carbon credit buyers so far? So I think this is a funny question um, to some extent, because the by far and away, the best response to the product has actually been a, by project um project developers, right? The startups and the people developing the carbon removal. I would say they love us. We like, they really get what we're trying to do as the broad rule. Likewise, the marketplaces, the exchanges, the brokers really, really get it. I think generally the people who are closest to the risk and closest to the kind of like brunt of, of trying to make this market work really see that insurance is a necessary part of it. In terms of the carbon credit buyers, there's a huge, huge span in terms of how they, how they understand this and how they react to it. I would say, I'll give you a couple examples, actually. We spoke to someone today who is thinking in a really sophisticated way around how their company starts proactively buying up portfolios of carbon removal in order to, in the future, have really high integrity net zero products to sell on to their end clients who need those net zero products for their own net zero strategies. And they're looking to ensure those portfolios of carbon removal credits, in essence, as a guarantee that that, you know, that ability to service their own clients will happen in the future. 
I spoke to someone the other day at a large company who, who was asking me, you know, how do you get the penny to drop with her bosses? Because she said, when I, from her words, when I, you know, tell people how many carbon credits we're going to need to be buying and the price we're going to need to be paying and thus the sum amount, she's like, people think I'm crazy. They just can't, they can't comprehend the numbers. Um, and then, you know, a final example of someone who is a bit in the middle, his view was there's this chain of problems that people need to understand before they sort of realize, you know, insurance is so necessary, um, which in his example was, you know, first, that there's types, different types of credits, you know, avoidance and removal, you need a diversified portfolio. If you're going to buy removal, which, you know, you should be doing that, there's a supply shortage. Therefore, you need to forward purchase. So there's delivery risk, you know, this kind of chain of things before you get to the realization. But I think, so I guess on that front, the corporate conversations vary widely, but I see it as a real education um, piece, which is actually really gratifying to do. And I guess one final point there, which is also interesting to me from the financial, you know, insurance is a financial product. So in essence, we often speak to the heads of sustainability, who are the people there with sort of between a rock and a hard place, right? The board has said, we're going to be net zero, go out and buy carbon credits. But then at a lot of companies, if you need to forward purchase something, you cannot do that without insurance. And so in essence, to meet a high integrity net zero strategy, you need to go out and forward purchase carbon removal credits, but you can't get that purchase past your CFO who had a procurement without insurance in place. And so they're stuck. And so we often speak to them and they're huge proponents, but then we need to go to the, the CFO or the head of risk or whoever's the actual insurance buyer. And then there's a, a different conversation to be had. And I think the interesting thing, and where Kita, I think, actually can provide a lot of value is, you know, there's people who understand carbon and there's people who understand insurance. And there's not too many people right now who understand both things and the ability to bring those things together. Uh, I think is a really important tool that we can bring to the market. Yeah, it sounds like you're really uh, feeling an important need in the market right now, and one that that seems very unaddressed at this point. I guess that sort of brings me to my next question, which is, you know, typically insurance products, at least in my like very basic understanding of this field, depend on like mountains of data, right, in order to to make kind of to to develop these insurance products and. In a field as nascent as carbon removal, how do you make up for that? Like, how does how does a lack of data, especially as we think about some of the more long duration carbon removal stuff, affect your insurance offerings and how you price those in the market? Yeah, that's a really good question. So one quick point there, I suppose, on on insurance and data. A lot of the data that you that insurance companies use is historic claims data. And that's what they want, right? So it's not necessarily data availability. It's the history of actually how many of these types of policies in the past have resulted in the insurance company paying a claim. Because that means they can then reserve money effectively. So like car insurance, if I look at you and I say, okay, I know your age, I know your gender, I know where you live, I know the type of car you drive, I basically have a statistical view of how likely you are to have an accident. And thus, I can price you very accurately. Clearly, we do not have historical claims data 
in the field of carbon removal or the voluntary carbon markets, nowhere close. But we do have data. The data just isn't perfect, but there is a lot of data available on the different registries. It's public data. You can pull a lot of it, which obviously a lot of people have. Um, there is data available from the different marketplaces and exchanges that we work with. And there is data available from the due diligence that corporates do on the, on the buying process themselves. So the data is there. It, it just is not perfect, of course, which is why it's a challenging thing to ensure. And I think that's where startups historically in new markets where insurance is entering into a new market why startups have taken a lead because whether it's cyber or crypto or carbon you need to be able to go in and look at the data availability pull proxies for data so for example in the form of carbon removal for afforestation reforestation we do have years and years and years of history of data on trees right we've been insuring trees for years um, so you do have some proxies for data. And then the startup has the role of sort of figuring out how do you take this data and use it often in a more relative risk scoring way. So rather than that traditional historic backward looking, how many claims have we had? How do we pull this data, look at it from a relative view? And so when you get in a new you know, thing to ensure, you can compare it in essence against its peers and see if it appears to be an outlier in any particular way. And you do also, to some extent, have to recognize that you might get it wrong. And again, that's the luxury of being an insurance startup and having the funding and the belief to try. And also our insurance backers trusting us, but also you know, not giving us so much money that we can go out and hang ourselves, if that makes sense, right? You start in year one with a reasonably small ability to ensure in terms of the grand schemes of things, a relatively small pool of risk in order to test the product. And then we will scale it up after that. But I think one thing that we have been really gratified with in working with the broader insurance industry is how willing they are to work with us and trust us in this brand new market. Um, and likewise, we've learned a ton from them in terms of how to take the data and analyze it via their very sophisticated means of analyzing and pricing risk. Um, so it's really working, uh, very much a working together type partnership on that. So how do you think about carbon removal permanence or the durability of carbon removal stored insofar as insurance is concerned, right? Like ultimately, how should we be thinking about the risk of reversal as it relates to long-term and short-term CO2 storage? Yeah, that's something we've been talking about a lot lately. And I think, I mean, we've referenced our first product isn't that. Our first product is, you know, forward purchase carbon removal credits to ensure you get those credits, uh, that you receive a verified credit. But of course, that's only part of the problem. You then need to ensure that that carbon is stored away for the next 100,000, et cetera, years. And so it is probably quite obvious no insurance company in the world is going to do a 100-year policy or even a 50-year insurance policy. But what you could feasibly do is just do an annual insurance policy. In essence, is the carbon still stored away this year? And if so, great. Insure again for another year. Is the carbon still stored? Yes, great. 
and onwards and onwards unless something happens and the carbon is no longer stored, at which point you would have a, a claims payout, which would enable the carbon that was released to be like, regenerated to some extent. Um, I think it's not perfect, obviously, because either an insurance company will hold a buffer, in essence, um, of their own, which is something that they could do in which you would pay that claim in carbon, or you would pay that claim in cash and say, then we're going to regenerate the carbon that was lost, but it's not completely like for like. But I think in terms of how that insurance can function, you either would do it on that annual basis, in essence, almost holding companies to account that they can't just sort of forget about it. At the very least, there's an insurance company sitting there tracking is that carbon that we thought was stored, is it actually stored? We're monitoring it every year because we're on the hook to pay a claim. On the other side, the way you could possibly do it if you wanted to look at a longer-term insurance policy was maybe some form of um, longer-term warranty on performance, um, which, which might be another route of doing it, particularly for the more technological stored carbon. But I think that is a very interesting area and one that we are very focused on. And I think probably a good example of needing to speak to people in the market to actually understand what the carbon market and the regulators would actually deem to be an appropriate insurance policy that actually ensures permanence. And then insurance companies could probably modify to fit that. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It seems like a really tricky area to get right, and it requires the involvement of a lot of different stakeholders. But this whole question around who's liable for CO2 that was claimed, you know, for a long duration of storage and that ultimately doesn't happen. Yeah. Um, there's certainly going to be at some point a case where that, you know, even in the long, long duration of CO2 storage that, that that could potentially happen. And how are we going to deal with that is, is a question that I think about. Um, and and it sounds like there's a few ways where a company like yours could tackle that challenge, but it sounds like it's it's probably requires a lot more thought and a lot more engagement with regulators and other other stakeholders that are involved in the process. I think so. I think it is a it's a very tricky question once you get into the nuances of what carbon storage is really trying to be and needs to be. I suppose if we go back so I think an earlier point that I at least tried to make, maybe not, maybe not well, <laughs> um, you know, insurance isn't a fix-all for all things. It is, it is one of the many tools we need in this market to create a more well-functioning, transparent, effective market and, and actual, you know, ensuring we actually have high-quality solutions that are effectively storing away carbon. And on, to that end... Suppose there's an aspect of insurance in which you can't prevent things from going wrong, but almost invariably at some point, there will be some kind of quote unquote, you know, carbon removal disaster. Just like there's been terrible oil spills and terrible pollution and terrible things that have happened in, in every industry once it gets to a certain size. You sort of can't stop that. You can't predict exactly what it will look like and what the ramifications will be. But one thing that insurance can do is ensure that there are funds to go out and fix it. And so at 
the most basic level, I think that's what insurance can do. And that is what insurance does very, very effectively when there are catastrophes around the world. It, it enables people and businesses and societies to build back and fix the problems that, were, that have happened. And so I think insurance as an industry probably does have a role to play. And in that, even as simplistically as that, but exactly what the form of the insurance looks like and exactly what its terms of cover are and you know what the claim payment is that for, from our side is still something we're investigating and if whoever's listening you know if anyone wants to reach out and talk about that i would welcome that conversation yeah carbon removal catastrophe is definitely something that keeps me up at night um but i i, I think to your point around you know how ubiquitous insurance is in every aspect of our lives and in so many places where we don't even really see it or think about it on a day-to-day basis. Tell me more about why insurance offerings are going to be absolutely critical to scaling up CDR. And, and do you see a world where CDR even scales without you know, sophisticated insurance products like this? You know, I don't see a world in which CDR scales scales out of a niche industry without insurance. Because I think when you look at any industry, and literally any industry, but particularly any industry that is built out of an asset, right, an actual heavy asset, that they all have insurance everywhere within that industry, all sorts of different types of insurance. And I don't think it would be possible to build an industry like carbon removal with all of these heavy science, heavy asset businesses without risk protection. And then I suppose in terms of how insurance embeds, we can take the specialism of carbon insurance out of this really. Let's just look at it really simplistically. You can look at business risk, technical risk, finance risk, you know, business risk at the core. Say you have a a facility, it's a, a biochar facility, or it's a whatever manufacturing plan of whatever, you know, you need to ensure that facility, the the property itself or property damage, you want to ensure business interruption in case you can't get your supplies and that shuts down. You might want to ensure against human communicable disease, right? Like COVID where your employees can't come in and work. You, You might want to ensure against, you know, Flood, fire, there's all these things that actually just to your actual business premise will need insurance. And that in and of itself, in all honesty, can be really, really hard for these startups to get. Then you have the technical risk of machinery failure, warranties on performance, um, science risk, right? But actually the science is is proven wrong. Um, you have the financial risk that what if these long-term offtake agreements, what if people stop paying and you'd use those promises of payment to go out to your bank to get your financing? But that's a credit risk you can insure. Um, same thing as almost a, a price hedge type insurance. If you expected the price of carbon to go up to, to, to X, but it only went up to Y, and thus that changed your financial modeling, which caused the damage to your business. All of these myriad many, many risks. And that's not even taking into account the kind of people risks of um, professional liability of what if your advice in terms of buying carbon was bad and you get sued. 
What about directors or directors and officers insurance? What if the directors of the company are are sued in terms of the you know bad effect of the company or you know not not taking into account their impact? There's all of these things that while they are risks and you can choose not to insure them at some point when your business gets big enough and sophisticated enough and even I'll honest you for a lot of these startups once you know you hit a funding round in which case your investors start to say where is this insurance how are you protected against these things if you can't go out and get that insurance your business at some point hits a blocker and i think insurance is that boring thing that no one thinks about when it's there because it's not like a software that you can use on a day-to-day basis. It's in essence something you sign and you pay for today and then you put away in case of a rainy day. But if that rainy day comes and you don't have insurance, you know, it's not a good day. And so I think in, in that most basic of ways, insurance is necessary to protect the people and businesses within carbon removal. And if you can take away some of that risk, they can just, in essence, take on more risk and grow more. And that's what we want to do uh, at our very core. Yeah, it sounds, it sounds like a critical feature as we start to, especially for companies that are thinking about developing projects at larger and commercial, you know, commercial yes. scales. You know, maybe they're in the lab right now. And so this is in the back of their mind. But at, at some point, you know, if you're successful as a carbon removal company or you want to be successful as a carbon removal company, we're talking about large scales, involvement of more stakeholders, potentially project developers, new types of financing. And this feels like such an important gap. And it's been great to see Kita try to address this gap in the market. And as a first mover, essentially, in, in at least the carbon removal space specifically, what do you see as some of the key risks and opportunities to your own business? So I think at a high level, we see our our growth or or lack of growth as being really tied to the growth of the carbon removal market. We think that you know unless we execute very very badly, if the carbon removal industry grows, we will grow. If for some reason the carbon removal industry and the broader carbon markets stop growing, then we will stop growing. Um that is a risk I'm willing to take because I think that this industry is essential to fight climate change. So that's a, at a macro kind of level. I mean, in terms of then, one thing that is both a risk and an opportunity, you reference this as a first mover. You know, we are definitely a first mover. I think as a first mover, you obviously kind of lead the way for others. And so to some extent, of course, having new companies enter this space, whether large insurance companies who definitely are looking at this space or other startups who will invariably come, that can clearly be a risk for us. But I also think it's actually an opportunity because one of the problems right now is the lack of education. Like I referenced earlier, people don't understand what you can and can't insure in carbon. And so more products available will help with that education, and then will also obviously be helpful to the companies in the space. And what I would like to have is to get to a future where buyers, sellers, intermediaries 
can have a choice of insurance products because ideally insurance is purchased to meet your own risk appetite. And what a one company is concerned about, another company might have internal measures in place to mitigate that risk themselves. So insurance shouldn't necessarily be a kind of one size fits all type thing. But right now, because there's no, there's not really any options in the market, you don't have that luxury of choice. And I would like to see us get to a place where there's a luxury of choice so people can ensure the risks within their business that are specific to their business. And so one of Kita's really reasons for being isn't just to get one product to market, but to get a portfolio of products to market. But I do think that over this decade, and I think sooner than near the end of the decade, there will be more options out there, um, increasingly so for people and companies in this space. So both an opportunity and a risk for us, but one that is in the greater good. That's great. And how can people learn more about Kita and get in touch with you? You know, right now it is very simple because we're a small team. You can literally just get in touch with me. I can't promise that I will get back to you right away, but you can get in touch with me. Uh, you can go to our website, contact our info at kita.earth and, and one of us will get back to you definitely. We do really enjoy speaking to people in this space. Yeah, and it's been really great just learning about your business. And I think uh, the more folks can learn about your model, I think that would really benefit the CDR industry more broadly and how we try to think a bit more sophisticatedly about what it's going to take to scale up this industry. So thank you for being such a great resource to the space. And thank you for your time today. I really appreciate it. This is a great conversation. Yeah, well, thank you very much for having me on the podcast. I was really honored to be invited. And thanks again to today's sponsor, Carbon Future. Carbon Future is an end-to-end -end platform for companies who want to participate in removing carbon from the atmosphere. Unlike conventional marketplaces, Carbon Future's monitoring, reporting, and verification platform solves carbon credit uncertainty for buyers like Microsoft and Swiss Re, while Carbon Future's support helps scale the world's most promising carbon removal ventures for real climate impact. You can learn more at carbonfuture.earth. 